And David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock and him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 98, David, Statesmanship and Song, I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. David, king of Israel, still lives. It is a famous Hebrew phrase, David Melech Yisrael Chayvekayam. For Jews, David is the political ruler par excellence. This can be found first and foremost in the fact that in Jewish parlance, David is always known as David HaMelech, David the king an honorific eternally added to his name. He reigns supreme in the annals of Jewish statesmanship. It can be said that, in being accorded this extraordinary appellation, David joins two other individuals in Jewish history. Abraham for Jews is always Avraham Avinu, Abraham our father, indicating that he is the supreme symbol of the Jewish family. Moses is always Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, in order to indicate that he is the supreme transmitter of the Jewish faith. And David is king because if we wish to learn about statesmanship from a Jewish perspective, we must first and foremost study his life. And yet and yet, when we consider it, we realize that at least superficially, it is a bit odd that David has bestowed the same honor accorded Abraham and Moses. Abraham is Avinu, our father, because the immortality of Abraham is evident at every circumcision, as a father emotionally enunciates his obligation of, in Hebrew, to escort his child into the covenant of Abraham, our ancestor. Moses is Rabbeinu, our teacher, because his immortality is equally evident in the Torah still being taught, learned, and observed today. But in what sense is David always, eternally, perpetually, king of Israel? We have seen in studying his life in the book of Samuel, astonishing successes, but also significant failures. And then there is the violence in his life, the reason why David was not allowed to build the temple, according to the book of Chronicles. Now, of course, David's battles were primarily performed for the salvation of Israel. And for that reason, we are more grateful to David than to any other king for the way in which he defended his people. But we are also struck by the violence in his life occurring in moments beyond those battles, including in stories where the Bible does not criticize David, but where the violence of which we read overwhelms all the same. For example, there is chapter 21, where Israel is struck by a famine, and the Almighty informs David that this hunger has come as a punishment for the fact that. David's predecessor Saul killed members of the Gibonites, which was a violation of the original truce that they had formed with Joshua. David appeases the Gibonites by allowing and facilitating their taking of revenge on Saul's family. Thus, when we turn to chapter 22, after all that we have read of David in this book, we may well ask of ourselves, given that other kings in the Davidic dynasty seem more marked by specifically supernatural or spiritual themes. Why is it David that we celebrate first and foremost as king of Israel? Why in celebrating kingship do we focus on David and not on the other monarchs in his house, who we will later meet? Why not Hezekiah, who destroys idolatry in Israel and in whose reign there occurs a miraculous salvation from the Assyrian enemy, the likes of which David never experienced? Why not Josiah? who oversaw a national penitence, and who the Bible says returned to the Lord his God like no one ever did. The answer to these questions begins 
with a song of David that appears suddenly as the book of Samuel starts to come to a close. While it seems at first like other songs in the Tanakh, one can actually find in David's words a distinct dialectic which helps us to understand the singular greatness of David as king. One of Isaiah Berlin's most important essays is titled On Political Judgment, in which Berlin noted that while we tend to speak about political science as if the affairs of state obey universal rules, the truth is that great leaders often decide what to do by drawing on a strength within themselves. In Berlin's words, political judgment is a, quote, capacity in the first place for synthesis rather than analysis, end quote. Berlin compares political judgment to the way in which conductors are able to comprehend and guide their orchestras, quote, as opposed to that in which chemists know the contents of their test tubes or mathematicians know the rules that their symbols obey, end quote. Leadership, in other words, is an art rather than a science for Berlin, often revealing the inner creativity and genius of those who lead. Now, these are Berlin's words. I just want to say, because I have received complaints about this before, that I do not mean to say that there is no art to mathematics or chemistry. But as I argued in my Tikva lectures on statesmanship, Berlin allows us to understand the unique problem that presents itself from a Jewish perspective. Political achievements reflect the greatness of the statesman's very self, and yet at the heart of Judaism is the claim that ultimately the endurance and salvation of the Jewish people is a result of providence, not only statesmanship. The history of the nation of Israel throughout the ages reflects not only political genius, but the wonder that is Jewish chosenness. For Judaism, whereas statesmanship is essential, there remains something about the salvation, redemption, and eternity of the Jewish people that cannot be chalked up to the choices of leaders. And part of the leadership of the Jewish statesman is to inspire all Israel to appreciate that. The Jewish statesman at his or her most excellent is asked to do something that is extraordinarily difficult. The statesman must illustrate the political genius and artistry that is necessary, but simultaneously see in these actions not only human achievement, but also the hand of God. The great Jewish statesman moves Israel's history forward while reminding the Jewish people that it is in the history of the Jewish people that God himself is revealed. This delicate dialectic was given eloquent expression by Milton Himmelfarb in his written reflections following the Six-Day War. Himmelfarb wrote, quote, Each Jew knows how thoroughly ordinary he is, yet taken together we seem caught up in things great and inexplicable. It is almost as if we were not acting, but being acted through. The number of Jews in the world is smaller than a small statistical error in the Chinese census. Yet, we remain bigger than our numbers, and Himmelfarb added, big things seem to happen around us and to us, end quote. Should Jewish achievements, one small people's outsized impact on the world, and its miraculous endurance be seen as a triumph of the human will or as a miracle? Are Jews the primary actors in the story, or are they acted upon? The answer for Jews is both. To adopt a Jewish approach to statesmanship is to embrace this dialectic. One is obligated simultaneously to believe that, to paraphrase Isaiah Berlin, great statesmen conduct history the way maestros conduct their orchestra, and yet, on the other hand, this must be combined with the recognition that there is someone much greater than the Jewish leader who is the true conductor. It is here that David excelled, and it is the song given to us in chapter 22 that allows us to see this. And David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock and him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence.
Now, this song is also in the Psalms, and it would seem that there would be its proper place. Why bring the book of Samuel toward its conclusion with these words? The answer must be that this song tells us who David truly was, and that therein we could find the difference between this song and others in the Bible. Moses' song in Exodus focuses on the entirely miraculous, the splitting of the sea. Deborah's song in Judges focuses either on military heroism, hers and Yael's, or separately on the miracles from God that helped them win the battle. But David, in his song, describes his own seemingly non-miraculous military brilliance as being attributed to the guidance of God. Thus, verse 30 and 34 through 37. For by thee I have run through a troop. By my God have I leaped over a wall. He maketh my feet like deer's feet, and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, so that my feet did not slip. So according to the song, does David act or does God? Both are true. The first verse of chapter 23 refers to David as Ne'im Zimirot Yisrael, the sweet singer of Israel. And this means that it is David's songs that tell us about the essence of his life. For in our song that we read in Samuel, we discover the true excellence of David in all his complexity as a statesman. Isaiah Berlin, in another even more famous essay, divided statesmen, writers, thinkers, and leaders into two categories, foxes and hedgehogs, in the spirit of a Greek saying, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. The problem, John Lewis Gaddis once wrote, is that the essay is wrong. The truth is that great statesmen are simultaneously hedgehogs and foxes, innovating within the uniqueness of the situation, but never losing sight of a central principle that guides their lives. Gaddis argues that the statesman who is both fox and hedgehog must embody F. Scott Fitzgerald's definition of a first-rate intelligence, which is, quote, the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, end quote. This is precisely who David is. The seemingly opposed actions that he holds are human action and divine providence. David feels himself both subject and object, actor and acted upon. He plays three-dimensional chess and yet remains, in his mind, a pawn in the design of the Almighty, and he feels it a privilege to be this pawn held in God's heavenly hand. Moreover, David clearly feels that he must not only reflect this joining of human striving and spiritual faith, he must teach others to do so. Thus the striking story in the next chapter which discusses David's various battles and warriors. Engaging the Philistines at Bethlehem, David is overcome by thirst. Chapter 23, verse 15. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. David's duty, he believes, is to highlight how his own battlefield leadership is a gift of God. And if the men risk their lives not for God's people, but merely for David to get him a drink of water, then he, David, has failed for a moment as a leader. And he must now offer that water to God rather than drink it himself highlighting how all his achievements are accredited to God, as are those of his warriors. Unlike Hezekiah, David's reign is not marked by a massive miracle. Unlike Josiah, David's reign is not defined by a spiritual penitential movement. David's career is defined by politics and war, but simultaneously by his profound faith, and that is the point. 
That is why he is the supreme statesman for the Bible. David teaches us that often the most amazing political and military moments in Jewish history come when Jews act with great initiative and yet also feel God working through them. Hanan Porat was one of the paratroopers that captured the old city of Jerusalem in 1967. Interviewed by Yossi Klein Alevi, Porat described the awe that descended on the soldiers. Quote, It was a feeling which I cannot really describe in words, a sense of being part of history in the making, no, even more than that, a sense that we were in the middle of writing a new chapter in the Bible. And Porat adds, As we reached the Kotel, the paratrooper next to me had grown up in an ultra-secular kibbutz. He too leaned against the Kotel and was sobbing. With a voice choked with tears, he turned to me and cried, Hanan, what should I say? I cried back, say a prayer. But I don't know how to pray, he cried. So say the Shema, I called back. But I don't know how, he screamed. So say it with me, I said. Fighting back tears, I began, Shema. And he at the top of his lungs repeated Shema, Israel, and he cried, Israel, Hashem, Hashem, Elokeinu, Elokeinu, Hashem, Hashem, Echad, Echad. Thus did an Israeli, having helped win a war, for which he could have given himself the credit, save for the first time in his life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To feel God acting in the episodes that are Jewry's greatest moments, to make achievements not about oneself, but about the miracle that is God's chosen people, to be bold and strategic and simultaneously humble, that is Jewish statesmanship. That is why, even as we will this week, read of David's death. It is one of the last chapters in Samuel that allows us to say of that very same person, long live the king. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.